Well, let's go to God in prayer once more before we go to his word. Let's pray. God, as we come to your word to hear from you, we pray that your spirit would enable us to hear and that he would do a good work in us, that we might leave here not living for ourselves, but for the glory of your name, and that we would do this for our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. How often do you think about death? Most people try to put it out of their minds. It's not real pleasant to think about. And yet, in some sense, it's always there in the back of our minds. It's why people are passionate about staying fit, or eating the right foods, or protecting the environment. Healthcare itself makes up 20% of our economy, and the anti-aging industry made roughly $60 billion last year, and it's expected to double. The fear of death, or at least the desire to live as long as we can, is always with us. But then again, how often do we really think deeply about life? Most of us want to believe that the way we're living is the way that life is meant to be lived. And that when it's done, we'll be ready to die. But life is filled with disappointment, unsatisfied longings, and much suffering. The best of times are fleeting and will need to be replenished. Do we really know what life is? is all about. Are we living it? Whether it's in our fear of death or in our longings for a better life, the evidence is all around us and within us. This life in this world isn't the one we're really made for. And that's good news. That is good news. And in our passage today, Jesus wants us to open our eyes and come to him for that real life. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to John chapter 6, verse 41. John chapter 6, verse 41. If you're using one of the church Bibles, you can find that on page 947. 947, if you're new to the Bible, the large bold numbers are the chapters. The smaller numbers are the verses. And this morning we're looking at chapter 6, verses 41 through 59. For context, in chapter 1, John the Baptist testifies that Jesus is the Messiah. That's God's promised deliverer and king. Then in chapters 2 through 4, Jesus is, is presented as being able to bring the blessings of God's kingdom into this world. And all who believe in him can enter into that kingdom and live. But in chapter 5, Jesus is rejected. He's essentially put on trial for claiming to be one with the Father. And so in his defense, Jesus points to the works that he's doing and to the testimony of Moses in the Scripture, saying that all of it points to him. 
In chapter 6, Jesus does another miracle that makes him look a lot like the prophet Moses. He feeds a multitude in a remote place. And so people rightly identify him as the promised prophet, like Moses, sent by God. And therefore, they try and make him king. He can make life better because he can fix their problems in this world, which are big problems. People in Jesus' day worked in order to eat. I mean, most of their day and almost all of their income, about 90% of it, would be spent on food. Or you could say, survival. And Jesus can miraculously provide food from nothing. But Jesus came to deliver us from much greater problems. To a much greater life with God. And so he tells this crowd of people that you're working for the wrong food. The food you want perishes. But Jesus offers food that will never perish. And then he makes this astonishing claim. I am the bread of life. I have come down from heaven to do my Father's will. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son of Man, Son, and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, that's an astonishing claim that is especially hard to accept for people who are focused on this life in this world. But if we want to experience the life that we're really made for, then we need to live in God's presence, in His kingdom, which means we must eat the real food for real life. That's the main call of these verses. Eat the real food for real life. And if you're taking notes to help you follow along and apply this passage, there are three ways to do this. First, learn from God. This is in verses 41 through 46. Learn from God. Second, focus on your deeper problem. You could say focus on your real problem, the realist problem. That's in verses 47 through 51. Third, put your faith in Jesus, 52 through 59. This is how we eat the real food for real life. We'll unpack that, but the way you do it, learn from God, focus on your deeper problem, and put your faith in Jesus. So first, learn from God. Look at verse 41. Therefore the Jews started grumbling about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I have come down from heaven? Now put this in perspective. Just the day before, Jesus did a miracle and they wanted to make him king. He's our answer to life's biggest problem. If he's our king... We can live and prosper. But then Jesus slips away, and when they find him, it's clear that Jesus isn't going to give them any more bread. And so now he's suspect. They're, They're skeptical of this bread that he wants to offer. So as soon as he says something they think 
they understand, they attack. That's why they're complaining in verse 41. Verse 42 isn't a question. It's an argument. This guy can't be trusted. How can he now say, I have come down from heaven? We know his parents. We know where he's from. They don't understand Jesus' divine claim and how to reconcile that with what they know about his parents and hometown. We do, of course. It's why we celebrate Christmas. Jesus is both human and divine, born of the Virgin Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit. But they can't make sense of that here. They think they understand, and so they complain and reject him. That's what we tend to do with the things that we don't understand. I don't know if you've ever noticed someone's reaction when you say something that they've never heard before. It's always negative, right? I've never heard that before. Like they're offended by it. It's the same basic problem behind our prejudices. Uh, We tend to interpret what's not like us or familiar to us as not good, not safe. And we do that with ideas. That sounds different from what I think. I don't like it. It's not good. Or, I don't really understand that. It's not safe. That's what they're doing here. They're complaining Because Jesus isn't the king they're looking for, and they don't really understand what he's saying. So behind this complaint is really a heart issue. It's just like unbelieving and rebellious Israel in the desert. They grumbled and complained. We want this manna from heaven. We don't want this manna from heaven. We want meat from Egypt. Blinded by the immediate problem of being in the desert, having to eat this manna, wanting immediate relief and pleasure of meat in Egypt, they couldn't see or understand what God was ultimately doing for them. The crowd with Jesus is doing the same thing. Rather than taking Jesus at his word or believing him based on the testimony about him, they're trusting in their own analysis. As we heard last week, they think they know what they need and what they want for life. And so they reject Jesus. We want a bread king, not a king who's bread. Their focus on this life and this world makes them blind to the truth about Jesus and life in him. And the same thing happens to us. God may be trying to teach us something by what he's doing in our lives. Maybe that feels like a wilderness. We can't fully understand what's going on. But we think we should be able to. It's our life. We're going through it. But we're so focused on the here and now, we can't hear him in his word. We're so focused on what we want and need for this life that we tend to struggle with unbelief when we do read his word. And so we're mad or confused by what we're experiencing, what we're going through. But none of this is a surprise to Jesus. Verse 43, Jesus answered them, Stop complaining among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, 
and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus tells them why they're so offended by what he just said. And he doesn't explain the virgin birth. He talks about our spiritual inability. No one can. Meaning, no person has the ability to come to Jesus and believe. That's what coming to Jesus throughout John's gospel means. You can see it right there in verse 35. Coming to Jesus is synonymous with believing in Jesus. Well, it's no surprise to Jesus that they're struggling with where he comes from. They're unable to believe. This is why they're struggling with what he's saying. They don't have the capability unless... (laughs) Here's the good news of possibility in this passage. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. God the Father draws us to Jesus. And this isn't like a bug being drawn to the light. Or or a man who's trying to woo a woman. The the Greek word for draw here means to compel. It's it's the same word in the book of Acts where, where Paul is dragged out of the temple. Because of our basic sin problem, we always choose to rebel against God. And therefore, naturally, we always choose to reject the Son... Until the Spirit of God does what Jesus told Nicodemus was absolutely necessary in order to enter into the kingdom of God and live. We must be born again. And when the Father wills that the Spirit creates new life in us, our eyes are opened and we see and believe. And in that way, the Father has compelled us to come to Jesus. We believe. We see. Praise God. And here's how he does that. Verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has listened to and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Jesus turns to Scripture and quotes Isaiah 54 verse 13. And they will all be taught by God. Here's the hope of that passage. Even though Israel is rebellious and going into exile, Isaiah prophesies of God's servant who is taught by God. And that same servant bears the sins of God's people and suffers God's judgment on their behalf. And then comes the promise of Isaiah 54. It flows out of Isaiah 53 as Andy led us earlier. Jesus, or the servant, is the instrument who calls God's people out of darkness and into light. And all those who follow God's servant are taught by God. And that's said in contrast to those in Isaiah who are spiritually blind, deaf, and dull. So the hope of Isaiah is that God desires people who do not see, who cannot hear, who cannot understand to be with him and give him glory. Jesus is claiming that his ministry is the fulfillment of that promise, and all who come to him are taught by God. But only Jesus can truly reveal him because he's been sent by God and has seen the Father. So if you listen and learn from the Father, 
You're coming to Jesus. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we're really glad you're here. And I just want to encourage you to humbly seek understanding from God's word so that you can honestly evaluate Christianity. Too many people are just like this crowd in the passage who quickly write off Christianity because they don't understand the Bible's take on hot issues of the day, like the Bible's sexual ethic. They think they understand, but they've barely stuck their toe in the pool of the Bible, and somehow it's as if they're drowning, experiencing a spiritual death like this crowd who rejects Jesus as soon as they hear something they don't like. Don't do that. Ask questions. Make sure you understand the person and work of Jesus. Put put yourself in position for God to draw you to Christ by seeking spiritual understanding from his word. Church, this is why we prioritize hearing sermons from the Bible every week. I don't sit in my study all week long trying to come up with something to say. what What is it that this week can be different you know, something creative that I think people need to hear or want to hear. I, I, I study to understand the passage so that we can clearly hear from God's Spirit in His Word. And that's why we work through whole books of the Bible. We're not trusting in our own understanding or our own wisdom to pick and choose what we want to hear or like to hear each week. Think about it. Why does the crowd take issue with Jesus and reject Him? Don't think, it's, don't think, just having read this, that it's because the Father doesn't draw them. That's not why they take issue with Jesus. They take issue with Jesus because he isn't saying what they want to hear. They can't listen and learn from him. How can he say, I have come down from heaven? And the reason for this is because they want a bread king. Not a king who is bred. Fix this world's problems, but not my problem. And that's because they don't see their problem. They think they have everything they need spiritually. We're good with God. What they want is a Messiah who will deliver them from Rome and restore their nation's greatness. That will make our life better. It's the kind of Savior that Many people are looking for today. But it's first and foremost about them, and it's worldly. That's why they take issue with Jesus. But that leaves them with their deeper problem, which brings us to the second way to eat true food for real life, for real food for real life. Focus on your deeper problem. Look at verse 47. Truly, I tell you, anyone who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. Coming to Jesus is believing in him, and to believe in him is to have eternal life. That's what makes him the bread. And nothing else that God has given us in this world to enjoy can do that for us. To be clear, life in this world is a gift from God. 
God has given us life to enjoy Him in everything that we experience in this world. It's just that in our rebellion, like our first parents, we traded the glory of our Creator for the things that He created. As if those things are better than Him. As if there's more life in the bread of this world, the experience of this world, than in the Creator Himself. And so that's a divine offense. Rebelling against our very purpose. And so the punishment is death. And so even now, when we get good things from God in this life, there's no real life in them. And in the end, we die. We need something better than this world. Something more powerful to give us life. And that's why people are dreamers. People dream because we want something more. We want something to satisfy that deep longing of our souls. But we don't look to God to fill it. We look to stuff He created. That's our problem. I mean, all the biting and clawing for life in this world, to to get more money so that we can have the best experiences, the most pleasure we can, is because we're all dying. We think... This life in this world is it. And so I've got to get it all now. It's the only life. That's why people are doing everything we can to extend it for as long as we can. But no diet, no amount of exercise or scientific discovery can solve our greatest problem. All people are Sinners, that's spiritual rebels, and therefore all people die. Not even manna from heaven on a daily basis, verse 49, will give life. Your ancestors ate that manna, and they all died. And so Jesus is saying this, even if I give you everything you want, if I become your bread king, you're still going to die. Do you need to hear that this morning? This is why a lot of people follow Jesus. They just want him to be their bread king, whatever that is. And Jesus is saying, even if I gave that to you, you'd die. But then he says, I am the living bread. Verse 50. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Anyone, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Unlike the manna in the wilderness, the bread that comes down from heaven gives life to those who eat it. So the, the choice is simple. Take Jesus. Not bread. But it's not easy. It's simple. But not easy for sinners who are focused on this world. The day before when Jesus filled their stomachs, they wanted to make him king. But when he says, you must believe in me, they become skeptics. Verse 30, show us an even greater miracle as proof that we should give you our lives. And when Jesus makes that miracle about eternal life, And the final day of judgment, 
they sit in judgment of him and complain. Because by nature, people like us live for the things that matter for this life only. Because after all, you only live once. But even if that were true, wouldn't that make life meaningless? That's what the book of Ecclesiastes basically argues. For all our labor, for all the pleasure we could experience, in the end, nothing comes of it. Because we all die. Meaningless, meaningless. It's, it's all meaningless. Have you ever thought about life and death deeply enough to see the vanity of it all? All our fighting, all the pain, all our striving and working for what in the end? You might say, well, for those who come after us. But then it's the same thing for them and they die. All the problems we're trying to solve for a better life in this world are ultimately meaningless problems. Even the very real problem, like these people face, for food. In the end, they still die. But Jesus offers food that anyone may eat and not die. Now, of course, these people are going to die. We all will. And yet Jesus is talking like there's an alternative here and saying, that's what you need. So what's he talking about? Well, verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. Verse 40. Everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Everyone dies. Jesus knows that. But when this life ends in this world, it's not the end. The Bible teaches that there's a final day in which God will personally come and visit this world, and he will judge his enemies and save his people. On that day... Everyone will rise. Some to experience eternity, an everlasting life, and some to everlasting condemnation. But it's the one who feasts on Jesus, who believes in him, that will be raised up to life. He will do it. That's why Jesus says in verse 27, not to work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life. You can get the bread of this world, so what? You can have all that you need and want in this world, so what? As C.S. Lewis has so helpfully drawn out, this world isn't the most true world. It's not the real one. This world has been affected by the curse of death because of sin. So it's not like the world that God created for us to enjoy in the beginning. Therefore, this life isn't really the one that we're made for. The real world will be the one that we live in forever when God lifts the curse and renews all things. So eat the real food 
for real life. This life and this world isn't all there is. There's a forever on the other side of death. You know, much of our discontentment in this life, much of our inability to deal with tragedy and suffering, is because we're not thinking of these things in light of eternity. We treat this life as if it's the destination instead of thinking about it as preparation. We think we know what we really need and we're focused on worldly bread stuff. And we even make our relationship with God dependent on what he gives us in this world, just like this crowd does with Jesus. Without eternal life in view, we're blind to the futility of all our striving. And in the process We try to fit the the life of our final destination into our journey through this world. And there are consequences to that. We end up focusing on ourselves. And we live with unrealistic expectations and pressure for ourselves and for others. We ask other people to do and be more than they're designed to be for us. And they fail us. We struggle with being fearful or needing to be in control. We're disappointed and depressed and possibly unmotivated to even live life anymore. You know, many times I, I end up with, in counseling with someone all because hope for this life is unrealized. And so they're confused spiritually and they're questioning the goodness and love of God. All because they have a picture of what would be and it looks like it won't be or clearly in their suffering, it's simply not. And to lead them out of that despair is to help them lift up their eyes to Christ and to heaven. It's to eternity. Hope for this life comes through a focus on the next. We're going to live forever. If you need hope today, what you really need is forever in your life. Once you believe in forever, you'll be at peace with aspects of this life that tend to be confusing, disappointing, and hard. So put on a set of eyeglasses that have an eternal lens in them. And see the vanity of chasing the wind of fleeting pleasures or of storing up treasures on earth where moss and rust destroy. See the foolishness of judging the worthiness of God's praise or the costs of discipleship based on temporary circumstances. Because without life in Jesus, the end of this one is the same for everyone no matter how good it was. You die. And after that, face judgment. Church, part of the reason that we covenant with one another as members of a church is to remind ourselves that we're on a journey. It's by sacrificially uh, committing ourselves to one another's spiritual good that we proclaim to one another that it's not all about us or about this world, but about Jesus Life is in him. And though we might suffer, though we're outcasts in this world, we have all that we really need and want in Jesus. 
He's the living bread. That's our real food. And in verse 51, that bread is his flesh. And that's another hard saying that requires real faith to accept. Which brings us to the final way to eat real food for real life. Put your faith in Jesus. Verse 52. At that, the Jews argued among themselves, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Because my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as a living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It is not like the manna your ancestors ate, and they died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. He said these things while teaching in the synagogue in the Capernaum. Now, on the surface, this is weird. Imagine meeting a guy on the street. He does some miracles, blows your mind, and then says, I'm one with God. God is living in me. And if you'll eat my flesh, I'll be in you. And therefore, the life of God will be in you. And just like God, you'll live forever. Because you'll be in me and I'll be in you. What do you do? (laughs) I mean, if you hadn't just seen him do a miracle, you'd call the police. Or at least walk away. But even after seeing a miracle, that is so outlandish that you'd have to argue with him. And that's what they do. It's another hard saying followed by another round of complaining. They're so stuck with this earthly mindset that they can only hear Jesus literally. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? If they could get outside of their religious system and their love for this world, which they're currently seeking, then they'd hear Jesus say what God has always said. The righteous shall live by faith. Habakkuk 2.4. And that's clearly what Jesus is teaching here. Now, how's that clear? Is it clear? Well, compare verse 54 to all the parallel passages in this chapter. So, verse 54, the one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Look at verse 47. Truly I tell you, anyone who believes has eternal life. So, it's the same promise of eternal life, but there's nothing about eating there. Or look at verse 40. Everyone who sees the Son of Man, her Son, and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. It's the exact same promise as verse 54, but there's nothing about eating, only believing. Or look at verse 35. I am the bread of life. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, eating. And no one who believes in me will be thirsty again, drinking. Okay? Not because you literally eat flesh and drink blood, but because you come to Jesus and believe in him. So, clearly, eating his flesh and drinking his blood is believing. Eating and drinking is the same thing as coming to Jesus by faith. But apart from faith in him, then like these people, verse 53, 
You do not have life in you. Now, again, Jesus knew he, he, he wasn't speaking to zombies. These people are alive, at least biologically for the time being. But they don't have life in them. It's the same thing that John the Baptist said back in chap, chapter 3, verse 36. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. What do you call a life that exists under the wrath of God? No matter how good that life looks, you can't describe that person as having life. The wrath of God remains on them. When Jesus says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. He's saying the only way to live in God's presence is to be deeply connected to me by faith. To be in union with me. Not to have a casual relationship with Jesus or a political relationship to Jesus, but for an actual union that the Spirit of God alone creates. Apart from the Spirit's work through faith in Jesus, there's no life. He's the living bread. You need Him living in you. Without Him, you die. He's the only food for life. Jesus is being very exclusive here. If you don't have Him, the Bible describes you as being spiritually dead in your sins. Spiritually broken and rebellious people don't live for God. We make life, this life, about this world. All about us. Unless we come to Jesus by faith, repenting of our sin, trusting in His life to represent us before God. Union with Christ is our only hope. And we form that relationship with Him through real faith, which involves repentance. But then if Jesus isn't actually talking about eating a real meal, why is He talking like this? Why this metaphor? Well, in part, it's because they came looking for Him, uh, all because they ate the loaves and were filled. Verse 26. He's sticking with the metaphor because that's what they think they need. But don't forget that Jesus looks a lot like a new Moses in this chapter, leading a new exodus. And on the night that God delivered Israel from Egypt, the people were commanded to sacrifice a lamb, and they were told to eat its meat and spread the blood of the sacrifice over the door of their house, to eat unleavened bread. And in this way, the death... Death passed over them that night, and they were delivered from slavery in Egypt. Jesus is preaching the gospel here. He's saying, I need to die as your sacrifice in order that you might live. Jesus is using the metaphorical language of eating that they should understand from their history and from experience. I mean, everything that we eat to live is dead. Dead animals, dead plants whether it's chicken or carrots, something had to die in order for you to keep living. 
But then on that food, we all die. Jesus is the living bread. His flesh is real food. His blood is real jank. He knows that he will have to die in order that we may live. But because he lives in the Father, or he lives because of the Father, he will therefore triumph over death. And there's no other gospel like this. There's no other message of salvation that can actually save like Jesus can. He's God who died on our behalf, yet he lives. And he offers us himself that we might live in him. Now, a lot of people still take Jesus to be speaking literally about eating here, even though they might not deny the rest of what I just said. They understand Jesus to be teaching on the Lord's Supper from this passage, as if the bread and wine become the flesh and blood of Jesus so that we eat it and live. As if something about the bread and wine that we take at communion infuses righteousness to us and transmits God's grace. But just notice, Jesus isn't eating a meal here. There's literally no food present in this passage. And he's not actually talking about the Lord's Supper right here in John 6. He's talking about faith in him and death on the cross. Even when Jesus uses the language of his body and blood at the Last Supper, he specifically holds up the cup of wine and says, this is the blood of the new covenant. Not literally his blood. He's he's taking the Passover meal to preach the gospel. My cross is really what that meal is all about. And so he says, from now on, do this in remembrance of me. Believe my body broken for you. Believe my blood shed for you. And then Jesus goes to the cross and he dies, bearing the wrath of God for all those who believe in him. So if you're here today and you're searching for life, you're looking for real food and real drink to eat, look to Jesus. You're made to enjoy God. And the only way you can escape his wrath and live in his presence forever is by trusting in his perfect life lived for you and in the death that he died for you. And since God raised him from the dead, you can trust that when you die, you will live. So don't look for life in the things of this world. It's perishing. Eat the real food. Drink the real drink. He's the bread of life. Anyone may eat and not die. That's good news for every sinner here. He doesn't say anything like, make sure you wash your hands before you eat. There's no type of person that has to, you have to be in order to get invited to this meal. Over and over again, Jesus simply says, come to me. I am the bread of life. I am the living bread. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. Come to me. Christianity is about a person. It's not about us. It's not about our right standing with God, depending on what we do, think, or whatever. The object of our faith is Jesus. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, we understand you may have questions. Some things in the Bible may not make sense. They may be off-putting to you. But focus on the person of Jesus with your questions. And if you want to do that, please come talk with me afterwards at the door. I have a book called Who is Jesus that I would love to give to you. He's the real food and the real drink. And we all need to take him in. Church, don't forget this. It's so easy to start going through the motions of religion and forget the person. 
that we're here today because of a person. What he's done. How he has earned for us a right place with God forever. It's easy to be a Christian and yet still focus on our circumstances in this world. And just get into the rut of basically just existing. Filling our days with to-do lists and experiences. Trying to make the best of the time. But this time is about his glory still. It's not about us. It's about experiencing God in all things. Real life is in Jesus, in his kingdom, and that's already in part. But we tend to reject that in unbelief, and we go for the stuff that's more tangible and immediate in this world for life and satisfaction, and we make it about those things. That's a mistake. Without him, the best of this world is ultimately like a sip of water to a person dying of thirst. In the end, your best life now might make eternity worse. So where are you tempted to look for life outside of Christ this morning? It seems to me that most often we look to secure life for ourselves in health, safety, or pleasure. Looking for the pleasure of sex or the emotional health of companionship, we prioritize some other relationship over Jesus. But how does that compare to enjoying the pleasures of God for eternity? Or fearing harm that people can do to us in this world. Even if it's just relational or job related, we become unfaithful to his word. But how does that compare to the just judgment of God for eternity? Or it might just be the daily, normal, justified concerns regarding our health and safety. And many of the good pleasures that God wants us to enjoy that just simply define our daily routine and calendar. And we just put Jesus to the side as a much lesser priority. And that's no way to live. That's not life. More than food or water, we need Jesus. He's the real food. So take him in just like you would daily vitamins. Make each day about Jesus. Regularly feed yourself like you do breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But do it spiritually. Wake up and get in God's word and pray. Spend time with him. Open your eyes to his grace that's in every experience. Like when you eat lunch in just a little bit. Give thanks to God for his provision. And enjoy him with thanksgiving your heart for good tasting food. And let it remind you of the real food that had to die in order for you to live. Spend time with one another throughout the week. Even if it's just a phone call to say, pray for me in this. How can I pray for you? Meet with your community, gather with the church Sunday morning and evening, but regularly feed on Christ and live. As he said himself, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And that word, all of it, points to Jesus. The Bible's most excellent word is this. Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, resurrected, and coming again. Jesus is our life. And through faith in him, we'll live forever. Let's pray. Oh God, draw our hearts and minds to Jesus. That we would live this life and this world by faith. With the hope of forever. Do this for our good and his glory. In Jesus' name, amen.